At first, it was just one sheep per day. But as the deadly dragon grew more powerful, he demanded more and more. Soon it was the people of Silene themselves, so intense was his insatiable hunger, his desperate desire for more and more. Until, until one day a courageous knight named George agrees to confront the dragon. After a long and bloody battle, George finally defeats the cruel beast, saves the princess, and rescues the town. With what weapon did George slay the dragon? A spear? A lance? A sword? Maybe, just maybe, the dragon was slain by love. Welcome to Slain by Love, your weekly sermon podcast from the pulpit of St. George's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. don't know. There's another thing that I don't know. I don't know if you remember my sermon from last Sunday, because last Sunday um, I preached on Psalm 115. Actually, it was Psalm 15. Psalm 15, and the question, the big question of Psalm 115 as I speak into Liam's uh, iPhone because we podcast our sermons from St. George's and don't have our normal technology set up today. The big question from last Sunday from Psalm 15 was this, who is able to be in the presence of the Lord? Who is able, verse 1 of Psalm 15 asks, and by the way, yes, you could listen to this on the Slain by Love podcast, just in case you were not here last Sunday. The question that Psalm 15 asks is what kind of person can be in God's presence? What kind of person is strong enough, mature enough, solid enough to be able to stand and be at home in the presence of God. What kind of person? Only the one who's 100% perfect. That is what we learned in Psalm 15. Only the one who's 100% perfect. Only the one, Psalm 15 tells us, only the one who is 11 for 11. Raise your hand if this sounds a little bit familiar to you. Yay, yay, good, good, good. Only the one who is 11 for 11. There were 11 criteria listed there in Psalm 15. Everything from speaking the truth from your heart to not lending money in hope of gain. And Liam, I lied. I cannot resist the temptation to rove. But look, I have your phone, so it's all good. (laughs) Who can be in God's house slash presence? Only the one who's 11 for 11. Only the one who keeps God's entire law. Now, friends, today we come to Matthew chapter 5. Today we come to the Sermon on the Mount. And what does Jesus say? He says, I'm the one who can dwell in God's presence. I am the one who is 11 for 11. I have not come, he says in verse 17, I have not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Not one stroke of one letter will pass away. 
not one jot or tittle, to quote the King James, will pass away, not one comma, not one semicolon. I'm very aware of the fact that in St. George's there is an extremely high percentage of writers. It is very strange and very wonderful. Jesus says not one N dash, not one M dash will pass away, he says. Nothing will be unfulfilled by me. I have come to fulfill the law. And I have two questions for us this morning. Two questions. Why did he say this? And why should we care? I've come to fulfill the law, Jesus says. I'm the one who keeps the law. I'm the one who can be in God's presence. I'm 11 for 11. And my question to you this morning is, why did he say this? And why should you care? First, why did he say this? Answer, Jesus is picking a fight. Jesus is picking a fight with the Pharisees. Quick, uh, quick preview this morning of the book of Matthew. We're still near, near the beginning of the year. Uh, we're still at the beginning of our journey through Matthew's gospel. Quick preview of Matthew's gospel. In fact, let me ask you a question about Matthew. Are there bad guys in Matthew's gospel? Who are the bad guys in Matthew's gospel? It's a, it's a weird question, maybe a little bit politically incorrect. Who are the bad guys in Matthew's gospel? Side note, when my kids were little, I would always teach them that in real life, there are no bad guys. Over the, the 19 years that I have been a daddy, I've tried and labored to teach my kids that in real life, there are no bad guys. In fact, I've tried to teach them they are not allowed to hate people. They're not allowed to hate people. They're not allowed to hate the other kids in their classroom. They're not allowed to hate their teachers. They're not allowed to hate kids in the hallway that are mean to them, even kids who bully them. No, in real life, I've tried to teach them there are actually no bad guys, and there is no hating allowed. Ah, but that is in real life, IRL, as the kids nowadays say. But stories, ah, stories are different. I've taught my kids over the last 19 years. When it comes to stories or narratives, books, movies, whatever, when it comes to books, movies, whatever, what I have taught my kids is that actually, weirdly, uncomfortably, maybe, it is okay to hate people. It is okay to hate the bad guys. In the Lord of the Rings, it is okay to hate Sauron and Saruman. In fact, I, you might even argue that it's morally obligatory to hate Sauron and Saruman. Because it's a story. It's a narrative. And those characters, the bad guys in those stories, represent evil. And therefore, it's okay to hate them. I've taught my kids. Question. In the story that Matthew is telling, in the narrative called the Gospel of Matthew, 
Who are the bad guys? Who are the ones who represent evil? Is it the poor folks? No. Is it the Gentiles? No. Is it the sinners? No. What about the tax collectors? What about the prostitutes, AKA the sex workers? Is it them? Nope. Who is it? It's the religious types. It's the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law. It is they in Matthew's gospel who are the bad guys. It is they who are conspiring against the shalom of God. It is they who are plotting the overthrow of Jesus. In 2009, Christopher Hitchens published a book with the subtitle, How Religion Poisons Everything. And while I am not a card-carrying Christopher Hitchens fan by a long shot, I would argue that Matthew agrees that Matthew and the Jesus that he tells us about would certainly agree that religion poisons everything. It's astonishing to me. The forces of evil in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the forces of evil in the Gospels, they don't come from the outside. The ones scheming to destroy God's shalom, to destroy God's representative, they don't come from outside the fold. No, it's not the Gentiles with whom Jesus comes into conflict. It's his own kin. It's the Jews. It's the insiders. It's the religious types, the scribes and the Pharisees. The plot to destroy Jesus, it's an inside job. And why? Why did these sinister insider religious types detest Jesus so much? It's because he walked around and he affirmed people. He hung out with them, with the downtrodden, the excluded, the down and out, the oppressed ones, the sinners. He hung out with them and he affirmed them. He did not affirm their sin, but he most certainly did affirm them. He hung out with the scum of the earth and the sinners, and it made the religious types livid. We see it over and over again in Matthew's gospel and as well as the others. The scribes, the Pharisees, the religious types, they despised Jesus' attitude toward the down and out, toward the sinners. They hated the way that he feasted in their homes. They despised the way that he made them feel joy and happiness and inclusion. They despised the way that Jesus made them feel happy. They detested what he told them. Now listen, they detested what he told them. And what did he tell them? We saw this last Sunday. What did he tell them? They hated what he told them. And what did he tell them? He told them that they are blessed. Blessed are you, he said, who are poor. 
Blessed are you, he said, who mourn with sorrow. We saw this last week, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are you who are persecuted and depressed. Do you see? He blesses them first. He leads with blessing. He begins with blessing. He gives them an A on the pop quiz even before he passes out the quiz and they see the questions. He envelops them in God's love before they have a chance to earn it. And the Pharisees and the religious types, they hated it. It undermined everything that they stood for. It undermined their assumed worldview. It threatened the very foundations of their lives. For the religious types, Jesus was an existential threat. He didn't threaten the poor right? He didn't undermine the weak. He did not threaten the promiscuous. But for the religious types, he was an existential threat. What is he doing? They asked. Doesn't he know that he's teaching them to ignore the law? Doesn't he know that he's undermining the law and making a mockery of our religion? That is what the Pharisees said. At least that's what they said with their lips. What was going on in their hearts was actually quite different. Because in reality, what they feared in their hearts was that they were losing what? Power. That they were losing power. The more Jesus liberated the people, the less the people needed them. The less the people depended on them. Jesus was setting people free from the poison of religion and therefore the religious types were losing power and they despised him for it so who are the bad guys in matthew the scribes the pharisees the teachers of the law why do they hate jesus because he's liberating the people he's liberating the people from their control and he's threatening their power and dear friends, that is why he says it. That is why he said it. That is why Jesus brings up the topic of the law. Not one stroke of a letter, he says. Not one jot or tittle, he says, will go unfulfilled by me. Do you see what's going on? He's beating the Pharisees at their own game. He's refusing to let them have a monopoly on religion. He's calling their bluff. He's pulling the rug out from under their feet. He's picking a fight with them. He's saying, will the true lover of God's law please stand up? Most of all, he's showing the poor and the downtrodden that Israel's God is for them. That Israel's God is for them. Don't listen to the Pharisees, he is saying. They are not the true followers of God's law. They are not the true lovers of God. They are not the true lovers of Israel. In fact, he's telegraphing to the people, they are the bad guys. In reality, he says, they are the hypocrites, as he says later on in Matthew's gospel. And dear friends, that is why we should care. See, this brings us to our other question. Why should we care? And I want to close like this. 
Why should you care? Because Jesus, his liberation can make you salty, salty. Jesus, the liberation that he brings. I want to tell you this morning in this season of epiphany that it can make you luminous. Remember that epiphany is largely about light, which is kind of why I was excited to worship in the nave this morning, because I would imagine that some of y'all are thinking more than normal about light. And the liberation that Jesus brings, it can make you salty, but it can also make you luminous. This is what Jesus says at the beginning of the gospel this morning. You are salt and you are light. My love can liberate you. You can become salty and luminous by way of Christ's liberation. Liberation from what? Liberation, first and foremost this morning, liberation from the law, L-A-W, from the law. You see, the law condemns. The law condemns. This is true both for the religious law of Moses, but also for the secular law of our culture. The secular law, what's Father Matt talking about? Yeah, the secular law, the continual need to look good, to feel good, to keep up with the Joneses. What's that? You're confused by this notion of a secular law? Just watch any random Peloton commercial. Look at the sexy, fit, attractive model on the bike and ask yourself, do I measure up? See, the secular law is all around us, especially in our culture of hyper-capitalism. You'll never measure up, we are continually told, unless you buy this product, unless you buy that service. See, the law, it condemns. It doesn't matter if it's the secular law or the religious law. Speaking of the law, in Langston Hughes' short story, Thank You, Ma'am, a poor little boy who lived on the streets, a poor little boy is caught stealing. His name is Roger. He's a poor little boy, and he's caught on the street trying to steal the purse of Luella Bates Washington Jones. Later, Ms. Jones takes Roger after he's caught. Like, she, he, he falls down. She, she catches him. She pulls him up by the ear. She drags him to her house. And later that night, uh, when, when they're in her apartment together, she shows him mercy and grace, including a home-cooked meal, a sense of belonging and understanding. Most of all, a sense of relief. Relief. Ms. Jones did not come down hard with the law. She did not come down like a hammer with the law. After all, she could have thrown him in jail. She could have had Roger thrown in jail that night. But instead, she gives mercy. She shows grace. She gives this desperate little boy relief. That's the kind of relief that Jesus gives. It's a kind of liberation, liberation from the law. 
It's the kind of liberation, the kind of relief that sets us free. Free to be our true selves, salty selves, beautiful selves, interesting selves, liberated selves, luminous selves. Happy Epiphany. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for joining us at the pulpit of St. George's Austin, where the love of God in Christ slays our enemies, our fears, our guilt, our worries. How are they slain? Only by love. Special thanks to the good folks of St. George's and especially to that masterful media guru, Liam Dolan Henderson. See you next week. Peace and be well.